Hello, I'm Stephen Coates. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. If the bodies are empty, cloud vapours of the spin-off dialogues are thicker than speech. We all adjust over the stadium, the missing spire, the half-circle of border ditch around Limehouse, keeping out the histories of Mile End, Ratcliffe, Poplar, laneways weighed under different gases, the encroaching fen, the speed of the time of the place changes. Now I am frighted in retrospect by a glimpse of the original wood, Hawksmoor staircase rising from the recently sealed porch, unvarnished grain of parallel universe. There is also Hablock Brown's etching, strong ground. To be here is wide enough. Understand the spreading of the clouds, the noise of his tabernacle. Endure, listen. At the mercy of cattle replays, open fields, Egypt the unredeemed. Today Arthur called Charlie out to witness a double rainbow. I remain in the bike shed, finger paws irreversibly black, the nearest coast of darkness. He was born in Wales, but he's lived in London for half a century, during which time he has become the chief literary interpreter of the city's malevolent signs and hidden histories, apparently. A British writer, documentarist, filmmaker, poet, flaneur, metropolitan prophet and urban shaman. A keeper of lost cultures, you like that? And a futurologist. A beat aficionado, walker of ley lines, alternative poet. He believed, apparently, that Thatcher was a witch, and still does. He is, of course. Ian Sinclair, welcome, Ian. Welcome, yes. Do you, you recognise yourself in any of that description? Uh, no, not really. But, <laughs> uh, it gets to be a harder and harder job to, to play yourself. Mm. And I'm, I'm kind of wearying of that. I'm mm. looking for whatever the next thing is. The facts. You've written over 60 books. Right? A lot of them have written me. You start out that you're trying to write something and then very, you realise it's only going to work when that something begins to write you and it's a sort of collaboration. And that collaboration is very much to do with where we are now in, in, in London. I, I mean, it wasn't sort of available to me in Wales where I grew up. So you think that London was the collaborator in your work yes, then? Right. Yeah, it was you, always, always waiting. You said uh, that you walk every morning and it's the way of your opening your system to the world in London, I guess, changing circuits so that you can write. Is that true? And did, did, you, did you walk today? I did, yes. No, I, I do. Um, literally every morning, if I'm not literally got to go somewhere or do something early, um, it's not. It's not a big deal. It's just a kind of, I suppose, about a fifty minute to an hour's ramble round, pretty much the same circuit, so that the the things I'm looking at recognise me and it confirms me where I am for for another day. That's how it works. And you, then, then occasionally you get thrown wonderful surprises. Like yesterday, there was amazing standoff between a crow and a fox. I'd never seen that before. The, the crow was literally chasing this fox right down a, a long street. And the fox, in panic, leapt up a, a vertical wall and got to the top. And then his little head sort of stuck <laughs> over the top to see if the crow had gone. And the crow was perched in a tree above and was kind of dive-bombing it. Uh, I, I mean, the, presumably an argument over food had started this. But it was, it was like walking into one of those fables. It was like walking into a French fable with the fox and the crow. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, with the light and the way these things were behaving, 
there was that sense of another city, you know, not the ordinary city of people wedded to their phones, sort of tramping along mm. at high speed and shouting about offices and debts and money and mothers and whatever. That there is this other thing that's going on all the time. I mean, that's reassuring and uh, rather positive, even well, not for the fox, obviously, but it's um, to hear that's going on. We probably don't notice things so much, do we, because we're buried in our phones, even when we're walking sometimes. Yeah, that's one thing. I think the first thing to do is is to get rid of them and, and mm. to sort of derive the equivalent from building up a soundtrack, a natural soundtrack. There's enough noise going on out there mm. without without this thing. And you've either got devices that cut you off from that or you or you open yourself to it. And having had that little bit of exercise and loosened up and also let my, my head loosen up, I'm ready to get to work because um, that gets more and more necessary, you know, as, as time goes on. It's I wanted to come back to, obviously, to walking because it's played such a big part in, in your work. And, you know, I was wondering if there's a sort of countercultural, the counterculture of walking, which you I probably think, I think that would be a generous way to look at it. Mm. I think there is a, a kind of walking brand that's mm. become the thing now. Mm. That, that, that walking is is posted as a, it's like wild swimming. It's it's a kind <laughs> of good thing to do. Hackney Council actually gives lessons in walking. No, they got a leaflet from my door when I, when I passed sixty or whatever to say you may not walk very much, but if you'd like to come out to London Fields, we take groups around and show them how to walk and what you should do. Because <laughs> so, um, walking was, I felt, one of the last freedoms one of the right, last right. anarchies in mm. everything else had been curated from the top down there's a war on on driving there's mm. a sort of a polemic towards cycling of the right kind and and the walker is is having to deal with all of the endless closures and prohibitions and and privatized public spaces and all these other things so the walking is over the years has become more and more of a battle and more and more of a movie because, you know, from the 70s, 80s, you were gradually appearing on surveillance systems which got <laughs> thicker right, and thicker right, and thicker. Right. And, and it's, it's faster mm. and faster and faster now. So the more you're filmed, the less you're there. Well, so like all other possibly countercultural activities, it eventually has been absorbed by the culture. And in, in Hackney, they're going to do lessons in walking. That's yeah, an I extraordinary thought, isn't it? I mean, crikey. I don't think a counterculture, given, given the digital universe that we're in, is mm. actually possible. I, th I think the counterculture becomes another kind of establishment to be manipulated. And that what you have to look for really is sort of subterranean cultures that are beneath all that and are still hanging out in little pockets. This sort of official version can so soon be curated. I mean, we're doing it now. We're, we're mm. setting up a kind of a system um, which you, know, you, you could apply to join and which would have markers and people who've done various things. When it's the real one is, is would have to be invisible. I'm really glad that you've dived in already because, of course, as I mentioned earlier, I was going to ask you what is counterculture? And, and, and in fact, maybe the more important question, which you're just answering there, is where is counterculture? Uh, yeah, I really, uh, where it is, is if I knew where it was, in a sense, it wouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. It's got to be somewhere that's invisible. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it's mm -hmm. in Dagenham. Mm -hmm. so, so essentially, the essence of it would be to be out of sight, but to be busy. I mean, there are a lot of people who I've seen who have done that and then emerged to be famous or celebrated in, like people like Alan Moore, who, mm. who obviously in, in Northampton mm. in his earlier days was invisible, but he was he was doing things all the time and creating things. And it gets eventually recognized and becomes approved and it goes into the system. 
but it, in its origin, it doesn't. It's, it's out there. It's just some crazy person doing stuff. And then they meet each other and a kind of network develops and, and so, so the whole system builds up. It's interesting what you say about Alan because, of course, he, he's remained in Northampton, which isn't the first place you think of when you think about Cairns culture. And yet he told me when I spoke to him earlier this year, he was saying that he's just started up an arts lab. Yeah, you know, which is like a kind of reinvented arts lab. Right. I think he, he was right. doing arts labs back in the day. He was, yeah, yeah. But now he, yeah. And he, he seems to say that in, in trying to set it up again now, it's, it's very difficult. Mm. Because the people he's talking to have no similar frame of reference. Mm. You know, in, in the day that he was doing it, he was already deeply embedded in American versions and looking what was going on with Jim Haynes and art slabs in London and Edinburgh and Paris. And, and yet now the, the younger kids he's doing, you know, really don't have that sense. They, they live in a much more immediate world where everything is instantaneous. And so Alan Moore is like some ancient sage magician who, who has appeared on the scene to try and invigorate them and tease out their own magic. Yeah, I think he was insisting on paper and uh, not digital. Um, but with regard to what you said about, you know, where it is, that's an interesting thing because we often talk about it anyway, like it's something that happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And in fact, it may well be going on, as you say, outside on Peckham, halfway up a tower block in Peckham, there's probably some kids making some strange music. You know, it's just that it, very quickly, a lot of that stuff gets into but, the mainstream yeah, culture. Yeah, because when, when they're making it, um, generally, their first instinct is is to 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 put it up mm. somewhere on the internet. Jonathan Green told me, you know, um, I don't know, I don't know if you know Jonathan. He dictionary of slang. Dictionary of slang, yeah. That, so yeah. Uh, he was. We were talking about slang as countercultural language, and he. I was asking him, well, you know, all these words, these sixties words like hip and chick and uh, pad. Groovy and all this stuff. Well, you know, actually, the 1940s words. Well, I, well, actually, he says that the 1920s, 30s yeah. black words from hip America, and he says at that time it took about 40 years for a word which, you know, had its origin in black America to get to, you know, Soho uh, in London in the 60s. He said now it takes about 40 days. I'm going to take you back. You're born in Wales, as we said, the son of a of a of a GP in Maesteg. Studied in Cheltenham. Apparently, a teacher lent you a copy of On the Road. It wasn't actually, it, was, it wasn't On the Road. It was oh. uh, Maggie Cassidy, a young love affair in, in Kerouac's own life, transmuted into, into a sort of fiction of him as still ambitious to be a football player and a, you know, a sprinter and, and having this um, fascination with this young girl who, who, is, who is based on a real person. And as soon as I'd read that, what I recognize its its energy and its immediacy and and also I suppose at that stage of life the kind of things it was dealing with mm. and my I, I chased up on the road which had which had just been published and got a copy of that and then followed him you know as as the books appeared with and I'm I still still read him I mean I still think it's wonderful well I was just thinking as well is that you know your your own books have got these epic journeys I mean his were often by sort of you know rail, railway wagons across east to west and back and forth uh, sort of hobo America wasn't it but I mean yours are on foot often and along or, or on, on peddler in fact in the case of yeah, the Thames yes, but I think there's a huge difference <laughs> <laughs> apart from talent is that his his journeys were were, were very much in a kind of mix of Buddhist Catholic mm. spirituality that, that they were they were pilgrim journeys and they were they were doomed to disaster. They they were always failed journeys because the restlessness was such that as soon as you'd arrived you had to 
turn around and come back. And there wasn't there wasn't a kind of a home base. And I think mm. the way it's worked really well for me is establishing a locale and mm. and working outwards from that. You know, mm. bedding into a place that wasn't my own, but I, I happened to come to live in, and finding out all I could about it. And then striking out further and further, particularly the one of going around the M25 was was perfect because it sort of defined the limits of what London were. It prophesied the London that was coming. And it, it led you back into the science fiction horrors mm. of the 19th century. And yet, at the end of all of these days of venturing, I would just come back to where I started in, in the same house and settle down and write about it and then make another journey at the end of the next month. From Dublin, where you went, you'd gone to after Cheltenham, it was, you came to London and, you know, you found this derelict mid-Victorian terraced house in Hackney, in Haggerston. She bought for a, what seems like an extremely small amount of money, <laughs> two thousand pounds, uh, uh, money which you, you you made from making a film about yeah. Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. So there was a sort that of na- another link with the Beats. Well, tell us a bit about that. I mean, <laughs> I, I, was, I was just going to say, but you're still in that house, and of course, so yeah. actually for I you, am, that yeah. is the centre, right? It's, that's the centre which you can make your epic, uh, you know, journeys on foot or whatever, but always come back to rather than crisscrossing this vast continent. Yeah, uh, the, well, the whole the whole experience, I think a definitive experience of it all was this seemingly accidental event in 1967. I, I'd left Dublin, where I'd been a student, and come back to live in London to try and finish a film, which I'd had a small grant to make, which I was making in London. And um, I was I was teaching in, in Walthamstow in a, in a kind of really strange uh, technical college stroke art school. And someone I'd been in, in film school with in Brixton in 1962, a Dutch guy, said, um, West German TV are, are putting out tenders to, to make programs because they think London is where it's happening. And at, just at that moment, where, where I was living, it was, very, was quite close to the Roundhouse in Camden Town, where they were going to have the Congress of the Dialectics of Liberation run by the anti-psychiatrists Lang and Cooper and so on. And they were inviting Ginsburg and Stokely Carmichael and Gregory Bateson and Marcuse, everybody. Suddenly it was as if the whole forcing house of these bits and pieces that I'd never connected was in one place. And so I just said, yeah, let's do a film about this and perhaps Ginsburg in particular. And um, I, you know, I thought no more about it. And then one, one evening a card arrived yes we're we've got the money we're starting to film next week I thought oh my god <laughs> so then I had to actually go and physically find Ginsburg <laughs> uh, which you could do in those mm. days it was just so strange you just I went down to Indica bookshop mm. I knew Barry Miles mm. who, who ran it and he's sort of oh, all right you know this is where he's staying <laughs> and I went round to this house um beautiful house just off Regent's Park and just mm. rang on the doorbell <laughs> Uh, more or less said, can Allen Ginsberg come out to play? And, mm-hmm. and uh, they thought this was very interesting. And, uh, so you can sit here and wait for him. He's coming back later this evening. He came back and, oh, yeah, okay, fine. And so off we went. Did it there and then? Uh, and, and, and the next day we were, oh. we were filming and, and mm-hmm. so, so on. So for a passage of about two, three weeks, I was, I was doing interviews and filming with all of those people. I mean... Uh, 23 so I mean it was I was hardly a scholar but I, I knew enough just to to do it and then we had all this material and um, so film, I mean because Ginsburg then of course was had, had become he'd become I mean, quite a celebrity mm, he'd, right. he'd been 
just thrown out of Czechoslovakia, mm. where he's king of the May. He'd been thrown out of Cuba for being gay, but he was a sort of global ambassador. I mean, this is a classic countercultural figure. But actually, if you look below it, this is the thing: it was he was also quite an establishment. I mean, he mm. became the establishment mm. of the counterculture, and he he was a sort of politician as much as a poet by that time. But he was also he would be hanging out with um, Paul McCartney, mm. and you know he was fascinated by the emerging rock scene and going to all of the parties and stuff that was going on in London. And and I was really so lucky just to mm. have got in on on the ground floor of that as a witness. And the stuff that I heard and recorded with the people at that time gave me food to think about for many many years. And maybe one of the most important was this just the sense we've mentioned before of just doing it. You know, I, I backed off from trying to sell things to the BBC or mm. do any of that and just started filming on 8mm and deciding I would have to publish my own books if I wanted to publish. That seems very much part of the spirit of the time. And of course, you know, when you describe that experience with Ginsburg, it's so alien now, isn't it? Because you can imagine the number of people that would be involved if you're trying to make a film oh. like that now and the arrangements that would have to well, be made. Well, you'd have the Andrew Wiley agency right. to start before right. you... <laughs> yeah, and the non-disclosure agreements that have to be signed and, and, and the, the layers of yes. assistance and stuff like that. Uh, and that seems very much part of that time. So when you, when you came to London, I mean... And, and you, it was backed essentially by these bookshops right know, the, the, from the point of better books on mm. on Charing mm. Cross Road through to Indica through to Compendium mm. there were these bookshops that were literal centers you know that, mm. that every all the writers all the figures that we're talking about would go to their places mm. where they produced their homemade publications or whatever or records and there would be an exchange mechanism and there would be events around mm. these which people would go to they were, they were busy events I mean the big reading at the Albert Hall, um, grew out of a reading in Better Books, a small reading in a cellar, which was working well. And someone thought, well, why don't we you know, take this into the Albert Hall? And, and suddenly there are thousands and thousands of people coming. It's chaotic, but it, was, it, it, it demonstrated that there was a, a real hunger for it mm. at that time. Now I imagine that um, for most poets, even even the sort of the, you know the big names on the scene, the Simon Armitage, etc., you imagine that they've got a new book coming out, you know, they're going to sell a few hundred copies, probably, maybe a thousand or so, right? But, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Russia. Russian poets still get onto the bestsellers list, right? Poetry is still like a big thing there that, mm. it, that we, we don't recognize. And Well, it was. And yet in the 60s, it, it did become for, for this people thing. people like Ginsberg. I mean, yeah. Howell was, was selling in thousands, thousands, and thousands. The role that poetry played at that time in, in that kind of countercultural world, for you, but also for those people, I mean, it, that it was much more part of... It's part of the dialogue, wasn't the it? Dialogue, it was part yeah, of the, yeah. the whole thing. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the the figure of the poet still had its its romance, thanks largely to the success of some of the beat beat poets in America who had had taken it out as performance. I mean, I mean they were proper poets, people like Gary, Gary Snyder and Michael McClure and Corso and so on. It's not that they were just performers, but they they did perform their poetry to large audiences. And they got into a circuit of going, traveling around American universities in the moment of countercultural resistance, you know, to, to Vietnam War and so on. The poets were, were a voice and it climaxed, I suppose, in the Democratic Convention in Chicago when, when uh, Ginsburg and Burroughs and Jeunet and people were there when the, 
Mayor Daly's police were just beating the hell out of these people that were, were arriving. So essentially they were quite a heroic, in America anyway, role, and some of them uh, were going to jail. Um, Ed Sanders was sent to jail for, for, for protesting mm. nuclear submarines or whatever. Uh, here it was, it was never that dramatic, because but th but reflecting that, there were, there were substantial small networks that built up in places like Morden Tower in Newcastle and down in, in Bristol, and these people started to meet each other. And, I mean, it was never, anything they did was not going to sell in, in thousands, but there was a there was a good hardcore audience, and it meant something. It wasn't a career, you know, mm. I think the thing, mm. you, you know, you're talking about Simon Armitage, this mm. is a, a career poet mm. who, who's doing a lot of manifestations of other things beyond poetry. The, the, the real poets of the moment have, have become, I think, more invisible than they were mm. then. For you, that was very much part of your uh, your your ex first experience of London. And you you were doing stuff. You're making films. You're writing poetry. I'm assuming there's quite a lot of events around poetry in the bookshop scene. There would be regular regular readings, and sometimes big ones, conferences whereby American poets or European poets would be coming and joining with these, and there would be real audiences. You know, in 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 well in the hundreds rather than the usual ten or fifteen. So that was that was viable, and I think until the the end of the seventies, when mm. when it the, the sort of cold light of Thatcherism mm. pulled the plug on all the small fundings that were behind it. Right, right, right. And it went. Right, right. But but I mean, it was a, it was a good fortunate period for me. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't have got a living out of it in any mm. way, or I couldn't have been published by any mainstream publisher. But it was quite feasible doing them myself, getting these small gigs and working at, at mm. a job as, you know, whatever, cutting grass or Truman's Brewery. Yeah, you did all sorts of stuff, and I was going to come back to that. Can you talk about Lud Heat? I mean, Lud Heat was, was uh, an odd one. And again, probably after the 67 uh, dialectics, it was the next sort of big moment for me, um, a recognition of something very deep to do with London. Which which comes out of cult countercultural roots. People like John Michel writing about earth mysteries and mm, ley lines mm. and, and energy, and um, you know Watkins and his ley lines, and uh, particularly a, a book by E. O. Gordon about prehistoric London's right. mounds and circles, mm. which came to me by accident. So there was a sense of London as an animate map of all mm. of the structures of London linking up. And I'd started to think about that and, and by chance took a job as a parks gardener down in, in Limehouse and got the job of cutting the grass in the Hawksmoor churches, St Anne's Limehouse and St George in the East in particular. And these at that time were real real shelters for, for a vagrant population. Mm. There was an ancient kind of population, the people who drew on those churches as if they were medieval cathedrals and, and, and <laughs> sat drinking in the deep alcoves and told stories and all that. And I then, as I was driving between these these churches, I began to think there was a, a link. There was mm. something, there was a pattern in London. And going up onto the top of the hill in Greenwich, you could see what that pattern was from St. Alphage's church below. Mm. There, was, there were exact lines running mm. as if the whole the whole mm. system came alive in, in, a, in a sense that you might might have found in the Atacama Desert or somewhere. Here it was in London. And a lot of people have written about that on cosmologies and how the mm. star patterns are reflected in the patterns on the Earth. And then you could build up just to think, 
that events that were happening were, were brought about by these connections. And I started to build up sort of wacky theories around that. I mean, that must have been quite an electric feeling, was it? it was, if you, it you was, started to yeah. sort of perceive that, or, mm. you know, that metaphorically or not, on the city. I mean, was that did that feel like you'd caught hold of the tail of something, or that you I were... I thought I'd caught onto the tail of something that had been there, and, and it also related to the more conceptual ideas of the situationists mm. in Paris. You know, the, this is where the psychogeography would come in. The idea of this system could be a kind of opposition to what was beginning to emerge in, in the culture of Docklands, this idea of just ripping down structures and, and putting up non-structures as if designed by a computer in their place and swallowing landscape and swallowing and deleting history. And so it became a way of resisting that kind of story and, and staying true to much older histories and myths. And what was interesting was it proved to be quite fertile in, in other people, like Peter, Peter Ackroyd, mm. Hawksmore, and then Alan Moore and From Hell took this, these ideas on into other places that were found a huge audience. So, so there was obviously something in it, but I remember the excitement of the original discoveries, mm. Mm. which seemed completely nutty, and um, I just thought, you know, I, I do a little book, and I, that, that's the end of it. Mm. Um, the book then was a combination of, of more or less diary of my mm. working life, mm. just things that were going on while I was traveling around as a gardener, and um, some sort of sociological reporting on the, on the badly treated gardeners who were working with me, who were in there forever, who were in fact wiped out not long after I left. It all became cleared and privatized, and that sense of these people who knew the place so well and mm. could tell mm. you such stories was gone. So I literally just caught the end of it. And I saw, um, I related it to Egyptian cultures and to to particular artists, uh, Hawksmoor, the architect, and mm. Stan Brackage, mm -hmm. the filmmaker, and Brian Catling, who was mm. then a student and was beginning to make structures that, that seemed to belong to a sim somehow to the same culture. But it, you weren't only a gardener, were you? I mean, no, no, I've, I've mean, got a know, list of the things that, that, other sure. things that you were doing here. Blacklegging at the docks? Yes, but it was what happened was this was the, one of the first of that job I got. It was a place called Chobham Farm in Stratford, mm. which was that, that where the Olympic Park is now. They, they got the notion that the docks were failing because of all the union difficulties and the, the, the refusal to modernize. So they thought, well, we get these great warehouses and we will just take containers. The docks won't get them. We will do the unloading and loading of containers. So they had big bonded warehouses and they got the sort of cheapest la labor they could get, which was, I guess, a sort of blackleg labor because it was subverting. I didn't realize that to start with. We were paid very little, but we had this amazing job because the the people who worked there were, were like the kind of last possible people you could Im you could employ. Uh, they, they were people without papers or mm. whatever, and and a few odds and ends like me. And um, shortly after I left, the dockers had had cottoned onto this, and there was there were major picketing and strikes and and real battles over this. But the docks were, were defeated, the, the, right. the old historic mm. docks. It was over. Mm. And this sort of warehouse culture, containerized culture, was what was coming in. So it was the forerunner of everything that's happened since. So it was really fascinating to work there. You're also um, 
barrel rolling again. It's terrible. It's like when I go to work, it's an obituary because <laughs> Truman's Brewery was the, was the best job really you could get in the area. It was it was well paid, unlike some of these others, and it was a, a, a very uh, well patronized activity in in that the workers had been looked after well from the past, you know, to the extent that there was a, a pewter pot with a sort of beer was waiting on your desk when you arrived and the the drivers who went off in the lorries had a free bar which was just <laughs> unbelievable they would just go in there and drink and then when they could hardly stand they would go back to their lorries and drive and but what was happening was obviously this was a, a property scam in the, mm. the, the brewery people uh, Maxwell Joseph bought the brewery and he was also buying up all the land around it and creating what's now the kind of heritage, Brick Lane, Shoreditch area, all of that came off the back of this. So we were seeing the last days mm. of that. And the old workers who could remember all the sites of the Jack the Ripper murders and they mm. could remember being mm. fire watchers in the war and they you could run about the roofs of the Trumansbury or go into tunnels underneath. Uh, really a fantastic labyrinth, wonderful. I mean, you know, I, I would have paid really to work there. And I got so much material for the book I did Whitechapel Scarlet mm. Tracings out of that period of work which happened with all of those jobs. Another another place that's been completely transformed was there at the weekend actually um, Trumansbury is now a kind of what is it hipster emporium it's a yeah. it's a sort of strange well, thing. It went it? through the classic stages after after it's closed down as a brewery then, then it became studios mm. for, for mm. artists you mm. know who were doing the same things we've been talking mm. about and had small studios for not very much money and odd places to eat and then gradually that gets elbowed out and it becomes more and more and it ends up what it is now. Mm. And then I've got another one here for you which is cigar rolling in Clerkenwell. Yeah, I'm not rolling. But I was, I was um, you were getting kind of loose cigars and packaging them and boxing them and, and you would get ones that got slightly damaged or were wrong colours you got to take home. So I was sort of puffing <laughs> on Havana cigars or whatever it, the smell I can still remember that sm I didn't do this job very very long but it had it had a wonderful kind of smell and it had a texture of old London so you did a lot of things and there were a lot of manual things mm. right you were either moving around the city as a gardener and, and right now tell us about that because of course well, on, on, you, on, on one level you've got you, you're writing poetry, which is one of the, the high literary well, arts, possibly, isn't it? Possibly. I mean, it's, <laughs> um, um, and I mean, you, you know, if you looked at the history of the poets we were talking about, of people like Ginsburg oh, and right, Ed yeah. Dorn, so all of them, mm. all of them mm. did these jobs, right? That's true. By yeah. choice, right? Rather than um, the bureaucracies mm. of teaching and drawing on the right. same energies they would want for their writing, they wanted that writing energy to be clean and clear. Right. So if you could right. go out and work in the Greyhound bus station right. as a as a luggage boy, that's fine. You know, you could you do it for X hours a Because night. it keeps all your creative capacity yeah, that was it. That was for it. the work. So I think is it Dharma Bums when he's a fire watcher, is it? I think yes. it's uh, Yeah, sure. You go up and sit on a mountain and Big Sur and something and you spend the whole time I mean, looking yeah, at the They looking. all they all did that. They all wanted that. Um, Gary mm. Snyder was mm. uh, in the you know, merchant mariner. He was he mm. was going and working on oil tankers and whatever. You, the period of doing those jobs was was something that was much better than coming out of university straight mm. into some mm. bureaucratic thing where you're 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 already being s sort of turned into a critic mm. rather than a performer. And I I had this taste of teaching, and it just involved more and more and more paperwork. 
Hmm. And there came a point when it was um, turned into a polytechnic. So if, if it was a polytechnic, then the the bureaucracy of it hmm. was increased hugely, incrementally. Hmm. I'd be filling in endless forms. Everything had to be done. And before that, it was very free and easy. And some amazing kind of people emerged from that system. You know, hmm. it's like the old art schools. You'd get really interesting um, consciousness is popping out of that system and then it died so I thought I really thought this is better for me to go out take whatever jobs are out there and, and the minute I walk out the door then I'm I'm free to think about anything I want and indeed you know in, in the Lud heat period I had a kind of dusty notebook and there's lots of times you, you they would mm. sit down between jobs and roll up cigarettes and they'd be mm. smoking and chatting so you could always scribble down a few notes and then in the lunch hour, I'd cycle off to Tower Hamlet Cemetery, which was like a wonderful wilderness, <laughs> very wild and overgrown, and find a corner and, and do some writing and have a sandwich and come back. Better a university for me than my actual university. Right, I mean, but it's a counterculture move in the sense that not that many people, I'm guessing, these days will give up a not sort now. of a, a sinecure and a polytechnic or university to go and be a gardener. There are huge, there are huge benefits. Um, uh, right. And I, I would say... It's, if people don't, they miss it. But, of course, the economic thing now is so much tougher. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you've made that point of me that you and Anna have got your your sense of your base. We had a house, but we had absolutely no money. But, but you, you didn't really, you know, I could we could live on mm. me making £15 mm. a week. And Anna mm. was teaching in primary schools mm. for, for something like £10 a week. Mm. And um, you could live. I mean, we, you know, we were fine. But that can't be done now. You're not only writing the books, but you're actually effectively publishing and printing them. You set up your own yeah. little, uh, you know, press, don't you? Mm, effectively, yeah. and um, and that's part of that doing thing as well for you, isn't it? Is, is yeah. that you're not going to wait around for a publisher to decide whether or not they want to publish your no. work. You're going to do it yourself. Right? Absolutely, that was that was crucial. And a lot of people were doing it. And most of the poets I mentioned found some way. Um, and there were there were cooperatives. There was like Bob Bob mm. Cobbing and the Poetry Society. There were machines there. If you w- decide today you wanted to do something, you could go down there and they would show you the basic technology and you'd have a mimeoed thing next week. That could be done and that was done. And, and really established poets were doing it as well as people who'd never done anything in their lives before. And that was a terrific system. And that obviously has gone in that this, if you want to do it now, someone would put it up online and see mm. what happened. Mm. Um, but it's not gone for you, interestingly. Not for me, no. Because, I, I mean, we're, I was going to mention this at the end, but I might as well mention it now. It's just that, you know, you've you've just got an edition of 50 coming out with Tangerine Press. Okay, that's not your press, but, I mean, you told me earlier that you were going to, you were you were basically printing them yourself and giving them to friends and yeah, stuff, Yeah, no, with right? this particular so, set called, mm. uh, it's called 50 Catacomb Saints, and there were, there were a wild kind of series of things I wanted to write. Obviously, it had no commercial aspect mm. to it and I'd been doing it for for a few years and I reached the point where this was done and it, it felt exactly like it felt in the 70s so I, I, I've done this there's something there I want I, I really want to do it but I can only think of about six or seven people who might want to read this so I just went down to instant print on mm. Kingsland Road and printed 10 <laughs> and they were gone the same day gone and I just put them in the post office fine lovely um, and then it sort of stuck with me, and and someone who who uh, Chris McCabe, in fact, at the poetry library, was sort of saying, "This is this is really interesting. This is good." I thought, well, maybe I should try and do a few more. And I've done I've done um, 
more substantial books with with Tangerine Press, mm. who are a wonderful independent printer publisher. Uh, did, did a, they did a version of Jack London's People of the Abyss, which is lovely, uh, and, and a book of mine called My London Devils, right. which I write about people like Moorcock and Ballard mm. and so on. Anyway, he, he, he said, yeah, okay. And I, uh, to make it more attractive, I collaborated again with Dave McKean, great graphic artist, worked on two films with him and on the book Slow Chocolate Autopsy. Mm. And, and, and Dave McKean is in that same spirit. You know, he's... He's somebody. He's a doer. He likes to produce stuff, doesn't does he? Big, big stuff, yep. and then he'll do some little tiny mm. thing that he just wants to do. And he's he's generously donated a lot of uh, drawings mm. to this book, which which really make it something very mm. special. Alan Moore the same. I mean, you know, I think he yeah, mentioned Moore, he was, exactly he was down, you know, likes to use the photocopier still. It, there is something about okay, you've done big things, and you you know you or you do big things at times. Mm. But also the pleasure, or is it the pleasure or the inspiration of actually that tactile thing of making something small and... The thing with the 50 Catacomb Saints, mm. as against my um, book The Gold Machine, which, mm -hmm. is, which has come out from One World, who are a proper publisher, is that there's the One World one is a negotiation. I don't get the cover that I choose. Mm. I mean, somebody else, a graphic design department, produces a cover... You negotiate for how many photographs you can have in the book, and you have a copy editor going through, and you argue the toss on all sorts of things. And it's a, it's a draining process. I mean, it's uh, six months of that stuff goes on. Uh, whereas with the other thing, it's me and the the guy who's actually printing it. Mm. We we have a little bit of backwards and forwards, and that's it. And the thing mm. is that it's done to survive. Obviously, uh, mm. you have to make a combination of the two things. Mm. Um, Ian, I want to go back to the Lud Heat times. You mentioned uh, Peter Ackroyd, and Peter Ackroyd too was a poet, right? And you knew each other. Yeah, and you I met him first, and we were saying about this period, uh, there's mm. a, the Poetry Society in Earl's Court, which was wonderfully run down. It, it really looked like something out of Patrick Hamilton's Hangover Square. Mm. Uh, used to have these these substantial readings. You know, you might get um, Basil Bunting or David Jones or some really international poet, but you might also get me and Peter Ackroyd. And Peter Ackroyd, when he started, was a, a Cambridge poet who'd been influenced by the New York School of Poets when he was in America and was friends with them and was producing little books through Ferry Press, who were run by Andrew Crozier. Uh, and I did a reading with him there, and I was reading some strange things from Lud Heat about the churches and the alignments and stuff, which he got very mm. interested in and followed up on. And then after X number of years, he, he um, did his book, Hawksmoor. He did Hawksmoor. And, and I mean, he has sort of acknowledged you in more recent years. He didn't at first, did he? But he, he has sort of acknowledged that, uh, that that was a kind of well wellspring yeah, of inspiration. The, the basic crystal, the idea, mm. was, was mm. from Lud Heat mm. entirely. But, I mean, he made, his, made it his own. He, he mm. makes it into a into an accessible mm. story, you know, by saying it's by splitting this thing between the the rational of mm. Christopher Wren mm. and the darkness, of, as he perceives it, of, of Hawksmoor, even even satanic, as he thinks, mm. you know, sacrifices under the churches. And it was very popular. I mean, mm. it was it was a sort of simplified version of this. This other th this my thing is much more chaotic. All kinds of stuff is going on. This it, is this is purified down into a into a viable narrative form, and it, and it was a game changer for him, wasn't it? Yeah, because, absolutely. I mean, and, and, absolutely. It, and in some ways, I know it's a word that you, you feel ambivalent about these days. But that whole popular psychogeographic thing, you know, went off, didn't it? The L London yes. itself became a kind of industry. Those right, yeah. those London writings and things. So, but it's interesting that he he too started off 
um, you know, as, as did poet. Alan Moore. Yeah, as did Alan Moore. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think well, it's very, it's quite traditional to do that. Just, but I, as far as I know, um, Peter Ackroyd doesn't subsequently mm. go on doing poetry or publishing it. Uh, not certainly not through the small presses. I think Alan Moore would be quite up for for publishing stuff through some mm. microscopic press if if it turned up. He'd just as soon do that mm. as uh, write something major. And I'm, I've never stopped. I mean, you know, you just wouldn't see them, but they've mm. I've been doing little things through small presses in, in 50 copies, 20 copies, 100 copies for years. Right, and I mean, you say chaos uh, in Luddy, which there is, but I mean, your London writing has em- embraced that chaos. It's embraced the modern world. I mean, Peter Ackroyd has really kind of gone down a kind of yeah. a retro, vintage sort of... It's quite conservative mm. in, in the sense mm. that it's a sense of London as a static mm. system, mm. that there are parts of London, there are particular locations mm. that time is, is a sort of whirlpool. It's cyclic mm. in there. Mm. If you if you get drawn into one of these, you you can't advance on what was the, the model mm. in the past. So there's a sort of a sense of um, something fateful and, and strange and accessible under certain conditions, but it, it's not it's not open field. I mm. mean I think there are distinctions between closed systems and this idea of open field composition which came from the poet Charles Olson right. which was that you, right. you absorb every aspect of documentation you can get your hands on you include facts so that people can make their own minds mm. up you research you look at the soil etc and then you you treat it and push it till you arrive at a lyric condition mm. at the end till you go back into the high mythologies of Greece and you mm. you reinvent your own cosmos you get you pull right out so it's it's epic and it's and it's it's about movement mm. and for you it includes the M25 it includes, yeah, it includes the M25 it uh, includes which is a closed system of course London is becoming more and more an enclosed city uh, it's a controlled city with the systems of surveillance and with this motorway that's a necklace around the whole thing. Great, we've done it. We've locked it off. It's a sort of traffic island. And the only way out is, is back into the past. Is that London like a city-state? Yes, it's like a, it's like a global... St- I mean, there's mm. actual... Within that system is the city of London, the mm. city of London, the original founding city, mm. with its walls, with its gates, with its banks global money we've become the great money launderers we're the kind of corporate entity and in the in doing the gold machine in peru uh, looking into the 1890s even then i discovered that everything that was going on in in peru in terms of movement was to do with a corporation sitting in leadenhall street in london this is your book a project with your daughter which took you far from back in time through your aunt through with your with your Mm. ancestors but also geographically far out right yeah um i've just done a book called the last london which was a, a sort of obituary in a sense that the kind of London we're talking about with Lud Heat and the counterculture in 1967 and everything, it had been an evolution, but it had gone. I think it had gone as far as it could, and the kind of writing about it had gone as far as it could. I mean, you know, if we see a progression between the Lud Heat to Hawksmoor to From Hell, From Hell is epic and, and, and taking in all kinds of theories and, and going to magic. Um, then after that, there's a way that sort of story more or less becomes illegitimate. 
you'd have to you'd have to do it in a different way and I, I'd come to the conclusion of all I could do with the last London so my mind turned to this other story of origin from my Scottish great-grandfather who had um, been turned off the land with enclosures in Scotland and crops failing and everything else and so as a very young man he'd, he'd been taken up by a local landlord and he'd gone off to become one of those Scottish exile colonists going all over the world and he'd made enough money in Peru, in um, Ceylon as a young man at planter to come back to Scotland at 40 with you know he thought he'd retire and, and garden and write and do all the things everybody'd like to do but it all went belly up and all his money was gone. All the coffee plantation was wiped out. And he ended up having to make this trip to uh, to Peru to unexplored territory, totally unexplored territory at the headwaters of the Amazon on the Rio Perenne to see if you could grow coffee. Um, and as a consequence of this journey, which I didn't re appreciate till my daughter started to research it, the Peruvian Corporation of London acquired a strip 50 miles deep on either side of this river, which was just given to them for debts, bad debts after the war with Chile. And they, they enclosed it and they made coffee plantations in which the indigenous people were treated more or less as slaves. So our, our journey was a sort of journey of restitution in some senses of explaining things which the people who lived there still didn't know. They'd never seen these contracts that had been, their own lands had been given away. It's a big story. And it, it had obsessed my daughter from a, from a young age. She mm. went to Peru when she was 18 on her own uh, because she'd, she'd um, heard about her great-great-great-grandfather and I'd given her his, a book he'd written and she got into it. And I had been using this material for years, but as a kind of adventure story, I thought it's an amazing thing, this old Scotsman doing this thing and writing about it, because he wrote about it in the same way that I was writing about the A13 or the M25 <laughs> or rambles down the Thames. Yes, the same kind of language, the same kind of attitude, the same humor. I thought, this is interesting. And then I discovered this underlying story, which was much, much more significant. It was a, a really deep, dark story that led straight back to where I started. It, it zoomed into Leadenhall Street. And, you know, uh, right on the opposite side was the sort of East India Company. So you had these small entities, as it appeared, in the city of London, bankrolling this huge global enterprise uh, to devastating consequences. So there's a lot to take on, and that, that became the story of this book. That's the goal machine, and we've not even had time to mention Our Late Familiars, which is, again, your journey with photography and Wilkinson, but to the Palermo catacombs, and we are running out of time. Um, so, I th as I thought we would, <laughs> we would actually. All that stuff has happened uh, since uh, Ludheat, and all that stuff had happened before. D d does it occupy, does Ludheat occupy a sort of pivotal point for you, then, Ian? I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, you could say it's a root text for the sort of London psychogeographic movement, I mean, for you, is it, or is it just you know, was, it, was, it, was, was it a pit stop yeah, along the way? I, I felt it at the time I mm. did it. It was it was really pivotal because mm. I'd, I'd done um, three or four books before that, mm. um, and you know they were they were little books that, mm. had, that acquired a small readership, but but there was nothing in there was nothing that grabbed onto where I was and also suggested what I would do to follow up. I mean, there was much more to be done. This was only opening the door, uh, and I, I felt 
happy with it. I felt mm. I, you know, I've done something here that that's that's got a lot of possibilities for me, and it also led into mm. there, were, there were associated films and there was mm. a exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery, which was pretty strange. That you, we just walked in off the street and said, uh, "Well, we're local. We know artists. So we want we want to be in this gallery. We've got." Th-. And they said, "Okay." <laughs> and so all of the, 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 the themes I've been talking about and the photographs that were gathered and the stories were were on the wall of the Whitechapel Gallery for a brief time. I mean, very bizarre. But you could do that then. This is this is the extraordinary thing. Now, if you you know you can't if you wanted to go in there, you'd have to have sponsorship agreed with huge whatevers and you'd have to book it probably sort of three to four years in advance for sure the 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 flexibility the fluidity of the culture was was what made it worthwhile in when you and anna came to london when you came into this thing which we might call counterculture the underground or whatever it is did you feel there was palpably something going on which you could be part of. I, I, I mean, I wasn't there, so I like to ask this question yeah. for people who were there. Was there a thing that you felt, or was you, were you just being young people doing young people's things and trying to be creative no, and do no, stuff? Was there no. a thing? There was a thing. There was a thing going on. But it, it had obviously things that go on don't just suddenly go on. There's there'd been something flicking away for a long time. I mean, we'd, we'd both been in, in Dublin for four years, doing all of the kind of things we're talking about now. We're all happening in, in Dublin already, you know, walking in and putting on plays, making films, discussing and debating and looking, looking hard at American kind of beat culture and so on, and aware that something is, something is happening, something is, is happening here that's changing really big. And then arriving in London, and, and it had stepped up to a different level. And I, I felt it, I actually felt it in my bones, you know, here we are, life is literally changing. It's mm. extraordinary. And I, everything that I've worked and thought out over the last few years is going to be remade. I'm going to be opened up to all sorts of stuff. So that, that part of the question is, is yes. Uh, and it was a very physical feeling and you could experience it just walking out of the door, you were in it. The other side of it, is that I didn't feel that I was, I mean, I didn't even have the ambition to be a, a player in this scene in that sense, other than the sense of here we are, we're going to be doing different things and we can do them. And and it works. And, you know, we're, we have a phenomenal sense of freedom suddenly after mm. all these years of, gr- you know, grinding through schools and universities. Yeah. That, we, that was not it. <laughs> it wasn't leading up to anything that was going anywhere that I wanted. And it took it took a while, you know. Like uh, Anna had a had a job at Unilever for a time, and then she, you know, in the same sense, there was a sort of recognition that that that's not it. It, it was madness to be discussing toothpaste in Argentina, um, and she she completely chucked it and became a primary school teacher in Hackney. And it was a very very rewarding. I mean, you're you're part of something that you can mm. you can see the changes going on around you. And it's part of a debate into the whole society of where you are. So, in a sense, I think we both um, mm. remade our, our lives and our previous ideas at that moment. And it, it, it never happened again in that same sense. Well, that also feels, um, the way you describe it, as a lost culture. It was, it was a culture that thrived on the fact that it was an impoverished post-war culture, that, that properties were in a wrecked mm. state. You, you could have... You could live, the squatters could 
be any there were huge squatting mm. movements because the council owned a whole lot of Victorian and Georgian properties that they they were not doing anything with. They basically just were waiting till the moment came to pull them down and put up tower blocks. But in the meanwhile, there were kind of hardcore Marxist communities, there were sort of hippie communities, there were all these communities were moving in, particularly in East London, were also obviously in, in West London, which Moorcock has written about. Mm. But there was a sort of different thing, I think, in, in East London. And we just hit, hit it at that right moment. And, and because it was so poor, it worked, you know, you, you could do it. And the, the street markets were thriving. The, the, you could go to Ridley Road and buy all your food right. for nothing. It, it, was, it was there. Obviously, there was a sort of a certain amount of local resistance because there were these sort of outsiders who were thought to be students or hippies or whatever. What are they doing coming here? But at the same time, a lot of the population was deciding to move out because they didn't want a multicultural society. There were a lot of Afro-Caribbean communities and so on were, were, were there, and they did, they were kind of exodus. And then, and then there was another lot coming in that just, just happened to hit that moment when it was feasible to make this kind of art and make those kind of lives. And it isn't now. No, know. those conditions again. And when you think back now, can you, can you remember that time clearly? Yeah, vi- vividly. I mm. mean, I actually saw it the other night because there was, a, there was an arena profile of the artist um, Brian Catling. Mm-hmm. And in this profile, they used a lot of 8 millimeter footage, diary footage that I'd shot in the 1960s. So you actually physically see him walking through what Hackney was then and coming to my front door, etc. So these glimpses are embedded into what is now a contemporary cultural reading of the history of this guy who had you know, floated alongside and was published his first four books through Albion Village Press. So essentially, you know, it can emerge on, on the other side. But the story still has the residue of all of this stuff where it seemed to us exciting and also impossible that it would ever go anywhere further. This was, you know, this was it. I, mean, I, know I never imagined that uh, I could get a, any kind of mainstream mm. publication. That seemed so accidental. But that's another chapter, and that sort of would, mm. would bring you into people like Mike Moorcock who, and Angela Carter and so on, who were already bestriding both worlds. I mean, you know, Mike was very much part of a counterculture, an underground culture, but he was also hugely popular. His right. Elric novels were selling millions, and he yeah. was Hawkwind, and you know, he, he was a model, and I only met him in, in the 80s. Mm. But actually, maybe partly through his meeting with you, then he himself transformed didn't he with mother yes. Lon- mother london and sure the books that came afterwards and what we didn't mention we had not a time of course to mention ballard you know who's another yeah, f- friend of yours and a peripheral in terms of geographically london wasn't it out in shepparton but uh, well i think mean, ballard really sat for me with this whole m25 project mm. this idea of moving out to the edge of things and then he be- he became a very significant figure because he's done that for years he's mm. he's always said that the the dreams of terror and whatever out in the suburbs <laughs> and it's a kind of argument between boredom and actions of, of um, outrage mm. that come out of that kind of boredom um, as it's all a kind of a strange hallucination being mm. out there and so actually going to visit him in Shepparton and, and getting to know him quite well towards the end I used to meet him regularly it was was wonderful and I got really to appreciate him I mean Firstly, as an amazingly professional writer, mm. he absolutely delivered all the time, despite all the difficulties of his own life, with, with his wife dying so young and him having to bring up the family and, and carrying on writing 
and having a base in a sense like my terraced house in Hackney he mm. had this suburban villa which he <laughs> barely touched he just let it be as it was <laughs> again pumping out the work pumping right? out the work yeah, like Moorcock like you you know and unlike he, Aykroyd actually interestingly yeah, I mean yeah, you, you well, all sort of produce a huge amount of work right incredibly prolific but I mean mm. there was a really nice period of collaboration between uh, Moorcock and Ballard with mm. the New Worlds mm. that New Worlds was able to, to reinvigorate the whole idea of science fiction by making it contemporary um, and in seeing that William Burroughs and Borges fitted into that pantheon as much as the old science fiction writers. So we're going to finish, um, and we're going to have a, a reading from Ludheap. But Ian, I think we should return, talk about more stuff. But I think for today, thank you so much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thanks very much. It's really, really interesting to dust all that down and to be doing it in something that feels like it is itself part of a lost culture a process of retrieval and resurrection um, because with, unless we do that then the, the thing dies and disappears so it's really important I think to, to now and again kick over the traces Thank you very much Yala. We're going to finish with uh, a poem from Ludheat I'm just going to read the opening of um, Ludheat which, which is from a piece called Nicholas Hawksmoy's Churches and what, what had happened was was I, I wrote the, the bulk of the book, the poems in the book, as I was working on the job. I you know, just literally jotted down free, f- fresh in my notebooks. And then the essays, I kind of gathered up this material while I was working there and accumulated it and thought about it. And then we'd had a cottage down in Dorset in Golden Cap one winter. And we went there and I was going to put this book together. And so the the bigger essay pieces then emerged when I, in a kind of fugue when I was thinking about that and were mixed through with, with the poems and the photographs, which were quite important, which we have, and the map, the amazing maps of lines of force and so on. So, so I'll just read the, the beginning because it kind of carries the excitement of, of my thinking about these churches and how London changed. And there's a little tag first that's really important to me from W.B. Yeats, which was, the living can assist the imagination of the dead, which is really what it was about. You know, suddenly realizing that the dead were not dead; they were still they were still active. And you, your job maybe was to tap into this other thing in the way that someone like Moorcock does so well. The old maps present a skyline dominated by church towers. Those horizons were differently punctured so that the subservience of the grounded eye and the division of the city by no wound was not disguised. Moving now on an eastern arc of the churches of Nicholas Hawksmoor soon invade the consciousness the charting instinct. Eight churches give us the enclosure, the shape of the fear, built for early century optimism, erected over a fen of undisclosed horrors, white stones laid upon the mud and dust, in this air, certain hungers were activated that have yet to be pacified. No turning back. As Yeats claimed, the stones once set up traffic with the enemy. Thank you so much for that wonderful walk. I think that's the appropriate verb through countercultural life at Ian Sinclair. And thank you, listener. We will see you, hear you next time for more Tales from the Other Side from the Underground. You can check out all that we do at neurovosculture.com. See you next time.